All right, so 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your presence would be here as we study your holy word. Thank you for giving us the gospel and for not only giving it to us, but entrusting us with the gospel that we might live it and teach the people around us, our family and churches and even the world itself, that people may be saved and built up in the faith. That's our desire. We ask that you would show us by your Holy Spirit what these words mean and may they bear fruit in our life. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In chapter 1, the Apostle has explained the need for there to be sound doctrine. He's been emphasizing that point in the previous chapter. Now, he's going to turn his attention to the next major basic practice of the Christian life, and that is prayer. The teaching of the Scriptures is important in the, the Christian's life, but also prayer. And that's what he addresses here. In the first chapter, he dealt with what's happening in the church and what the church should do about sound teaching. In this chapter, he focuses firstly on the church's ability to carry out sound teaching. The church's ability to carry out sound teaching is on the basis of having a proper orderly society so that the church can function. And this is why he calls on the church to pray for the authorities. You'll also notice that it is for pagan authorities. They are Ephesians living in the Roman Empire in the first century and the Romans were pagans. They worshipped gods, many gods and idols. They were polytheists. They were not Christians. The vast majority of the Roman officials did not believe in the gospel. He's calling on Christians to focus their attention on praying for them so that they, the church, can live as they're supposed to live. In other words, it would be wrong, it would be perverse not to pray for the government, to pray for those in authority so that the government does what it's supposed to do in the sight of God and for the benefit of the people of God. That's why he says in verse 1, he says, first of all then, if we're going to have sound doctrine and if we're going to have an orderly church, a church that is being built up in the faith, he says, first of all then, let's pray that the authorities, the government, does what they're supposed to do. So he says, I urge. It's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of urgency. It is necessary for Christians to pray for the authorities. He calls it entreaties, prayers, petitions. These words, I believe, they're hard to define, we basically know they are requests of God 
to work in the heart of kings so that they might do what they're supposed to do. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. It is in the power of God to turn the heart of kings, and that's why we ought to pray that God turns the hearts of kings. Not only pray for them, pray that they do what they're supposed to do and help and benefit the church, but also be thankful for them. This is hard to do. It's hard to do when the authorities are corrupt, and it's hard to do when the authorities are pagan, and when they have, as their own religion, a religion that is antithetical to the Christian faith. But yet, we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to pray with thanksgiving. Be thankful that they are there. Because if there were no government whatsoever, there would be chaos, anarchy. There would be uh, pillaging and looting going on all the time because there would be no one in authority to keep the perverse desires of men in check. So, in a sense, we ought to be thankful that the government is there and that the few and the some who are in the government are doing what they're supposed to do. Be thankful for them and pray that they increase, that their kind within the, the government system increases. He says, be made on behalf of all men, in verse 1. We're supposed to pray on behalf of all men. By this phrase, he's implying a few things. We're not only, as Christians, to pray for one another, the body of Christ. Yes, we pray for the ones we see in the local church. But we're also supposed to pray for the ones we don't see and we don't have any personal interaction with them. We are supposed to pray for them. It's not only for us to pray for one another, which we should, but we're also supposed to pray for those on the outside who don't know Christ, that they might know Christ, and if they don't know Christ, that they would practice righteousness and justice and truth in the, authority, uh, in the sphere of authority that they possess. We're supposed to pray on their behalf. When he says all men, he is particularly keeping in mind here kings and all who are in authority. Kings and all who are in authority. He explains what he means by the phrase, all men. By all men, he's not saying, pray for every individual or pray for every individual who's ever lived. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, the phrase, all men, means every person. At other times, the phrase has a specified special, specific meaning in the context. In this context, he's saying the all men are the kings and all who are in authority. In other words, don't just pray for your peers. Don't just pray for those of the same rank and status of society that you are in. Pray for those who are of a higher status. Pray for those who are different than you. Pray for all kinds of people, all sorts of people. In this case, for those who are, have a higher status and who are pagans. Pray for them that they might be saved, as Paul says in Romans 10, verse 1, on behalf of the Jewish people. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. We ought to pray for that. And in Romans 13, 13, 1 to 7, the apostle reminds the Roman Christians where the seat of power is in the Roman Empire. The Roman Christians in the city of Rome that they ought to consider the authorities as servants of God and ministers of God, set in power to carry out the purposes of God, to make sure that the society has 
righteousness, justice, truth, equity that is spread throughout all their sphere of influence. As well, in verse 2, he explains the reason. Why is it that we should pray for them? We pray for their benefit, but we also pray for our benefit. And he specifies our benefit right here in verse 2. In order that, that's a purpose statement, uh, purpose uh, conjunction. It's introducing the reason, the purpose. In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In order that we, we the church, we pray for the kings in order that we, the church, can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We don't pray for the kings and all who are in authority in order that we and all religions of the world can live and do as they please. It doesn't say that. It says, in order that we, meaning the church, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We don't pray for the kings in order that they might continue in their paganism. We don't pray in order that they might continue worshiping idols and practicing immorality. We don't pray for that. We don't pray that they have the freedom to do as they see fit. We pray that they do their God-given duty for matters of justice and allow us, the church, to practice our faith the way we ought to practice it, in tranquility and quietness. When the Christian church is doing what it should, then there is harmony, there's peace, there's love of one another, there's helping the neighbor as himself, there is the desire to love and fear God. This is the kind of life the Christian ought to be characterized by, and this is what the scriptures call us to do. They call us to live this way so that there might be justice, there might be righteousness, peace in society, because the church is showing the rest of the society how to live. Supposed to be living in this way. And notice, it's not just peace in the absence of conflict. It's in all godliness and dignity. In all godliness and dignity. We're supposed to live righteously. We're supposed to live according to God's word. We're supposed to pursue holiness, sanctification, and have a good reputation, honor, Dignity, as he calls it here in verse 2. We should be living dignified lives so that those on the inside of the church and on the outside of the church say, we trust him. He's a man of God. He's a trustworthy person. He lives an honest life. He's a hard worker. He, he truly loves people. This is the kind of dignified life that we should be living. This is the reason for our prayers so that we might benefit. Now he further explains and emphasizes the fact that this is what we ought to do. Verse 3, this, doing these things, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That means that when we don't pray for the authorities, it's evil and unacceptable. That means when we shake off every and any government authority over our life, that it is evil and unacceptable. We cannot have a, a, a chaotic society, a society in which there is no governmental authority. We have to have one that 
has true authority and does what its God-given duty is to do, to keep justice and to help the Christian church to flourish. That's the purpose of government. And he says it's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now he transitions to mention God as Savior, specifying the fact that we're praying and living this way so that people may be saved. He says, God our Savior. And in this sense, in the usual sense of Scripture, Savior means one who saves from sin, death, hell, slavery to the devil, punishment under the law. We pray in the sight of God our Savior. We live our life in the sight of God our Savior who saves us from these consequences and punishments that we deserve. Verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This desire of God is not a potential desire. This desire of God is not a possible desire. It's not a hypothetical desire. This desire of God, according to this context and other contexts of Scripture, is a definite desire. It's a desire that reaches fruition. It is accomplished. It actually happens. This desire is something that is definite, certain, absolute. It will be accomplished. That is, that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, when he says all men, as he said in verse 1, we've already seen in verse 1, by all men, he did not mean every individual. Because it's impossible to pray for those individuals who have already died, who have preceded us since the time of Adam and Eve. We cannot pray for them. There's no need to pray for them. They're either in heaven or in hell. Already, therefore, we've seen in verse 1 that in context, he's speaking of different kinds or ranks, different sorts of people that deserve our prayers. And this is what he continues to mean in verse 4. By all men, he does not mean every person, every individual. God does not desire all men to be saved. If he did desire all men to be saved, then from the time of Adam and all the nations of the earth since then after the flood and Noah's sons in Genesis 9, 10, and 11, from that time onward, God would have made sure that every nation, every tribe, every clan had the word of God, heard the word of God at least one time. But that has not happened. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, there were individuals at times from Gentile nations saved and certain Gentilic nations that were saved, such as the Ninevites in one generation, the generation of Jonah the prophet. They were saved, but not all the nations of the earth heard the word of God. If God actually wanted every individual to be saved, he would have had the gospel preached to them. But he did not do so. As well, we know that the apostle has in mind the Gentiles and people of different sorts from verse 7. Verse 7, he calls himself a teacher of the Gentiles. A teacher of the Gentiles. 
He went around preaching in various parts of the Roman Empire. He did not go to every part of the Roman Empire and preach to every individual of the Roman Empire in his own lifetime. He, he's identifying the fact that he's supposed to preach not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles, to other nations, so that there might be people among them who are saved. Back to verse 4. God desires all men to be saved. This implies that they need salvation. This implies that they need salvation. He's already spoken of that in chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. He assumes that we are sinners that need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sin and the consequences of our sin, which is punishment in hell forever, enslavement by the devil and the world and the flesh. We need to be saved from all of these enemies of, of sinners. Not only do we need to be saved, he says here in verse 4, the ones who are saved are also ones who come to the knowledge of the truth. Come to the knowledge of the truth. By this phrase, he's speaking of those people who actually embrace it to their benefit. When he says, come to the knowledge of the truth, they embrace it to their benefit. He doesn't mean they just hear about it and then reject it. Some reject, some accept. He's talking about those who actually embrace it. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he uses this phrase again. 2 Timothy 2.23 But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The opponents, who are the ones who speculate and produce quarrels, the Lord's bondservant must not be like them. And then he says in verse 25, that with their patient teaching of them, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. For them to come to the truth, it requires the, uh, on the beforehand that God grant repentance. If God doesn't grant repentance, give repentance, gift this gift of repentance to them, they will not come to the knowledge of the truth. It's the repentance that leads them to the knowledge of the truth. And these are people, not just a little here or a little there, stray in the Christian life. These are the people who are ensnared by the devil, captive by him to do his will. They're people who need the complete and true repentance. They need the repentance that leads to life. As it says in Acts eleven, nineteen. So this is the knowledge of the truth that comes from God. And it's a certain knowledge of the truth. It's a knowledge that results in their salvation. Another verse is 2 Timothy 3. 
2 Timothy 3. After describing in the first few verses some of the sins of the last days, he says in verse 5, 3 verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They always learn. They have a lot of knowledge. They know things here or there, everywhere in the Bible. They know those things, but they never come to the knowledge of the truth. This is a description of false teachers. They don't ever come to the knowledge of the truth. They have access to the truth. They understand bits and pieces here or there. They understand many things about the truth, but they don't come to a proper knowledge of the truth so that they're saved. That's the kind of knowledge that the Apostle means in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. The the ones that God desires to be saved come to the knowledge of the truth. And we know that this, not, this does not happen to everyone. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 2 says that he, he w- wishes and prays that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. Not all have faith. If they're going to have faith or if they're going to have repentance, it depends on the will of God. If God chooses to save them, they will be saved. They will repent of sin and, and be led to the knowledge of the truth. Come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5. Now why is this necessary for us, we who do know the truth, we who have embraced the truth, we who have been saved, why is it necessary for us to know this and pray accordingly? Verse 5 says, For or because... Whenever you see in English the word for, F-O-R, at the beginning of a sentence, it usually is explaining a cause or a reason. Why should we do this? For, because, there is one God. There is only one God. There aren't two or three or 333 million gods. There is only one true and living God. And because there's only one God, people need knowledge of that true God through Christ in order to be saved. Jesus said in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. They need to know about the true God through Christ. That's the only way. And this is what the Apostle says in the next phrase, verse 5, There's one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. Jesus said that in John 17, 3. He knows that he's the only mediator. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. Here too, the apostle emphasizes the fact that there's only one true God and one mediator. One person who can intercede on behalf of sinful men so that they are reconciled to the true and living God. Only one. And it's in Christ. He mentions, too, that Christ is a man. We know that He 
is fully God and fully man without sin. Why does he say the man Christ Jesus? I believe he's emphasizing the man Christ Jesus here because it is among men where mediation and salvation and reconciliation is necessary and the one who came in his incarnation to identify himself with us live perfectly and then die on the cross as a perfect atonement and rise from the dead came as a man. So if we're going to consult any man, if we're going to put our hope in any man, we ought to put it in the perfect man who died on the cross and rose from the dead and is God's appointed mediator to save us and to bring us from men in our sinful state to God himself which he mentions in verse 6. He did so by giving himself. Christ gave himself, offered himself, delivered up himself on the cross as a ransom for all. He died on the cross as a ransom for all. This ransom, we may ask, was this a potential ransom with a potential application? Or was this a ransom with a definite application? Is it a hypothetical or is it a definite ransom? Did the ransom actually occur? Yes, he died in time and space. In our history, 2,000 years ago, he actually died on the cross. That part of it, among professing Christians, that's indisputable. Nobody disputes that he died on the cross. But what about the application of that death? What about the punishment that he took upon himself on the cross? What about this ransom? What, is this a definite ransom with a definite application to a particular group of people? Or is it a potential ransom? According to the context and according to our understanding of many other passages of Scripture, this is a definite ransom uh, with a definite application. That's the key question. The application is definite for all. For all. Who are the all? The all are the all sorts of men of verses 1 and 2. The all are the all that come to the knowledge of the truth and are saved in verse 4. The all are, in verse 7, the Gentiles in faith and truth. He's talking about all kinds, all sorts <clears throat> all manner of people of different ranks, different languages, male and female, slave or free. This is what he means. These are the kinds of people for whom Christ died. He ransomed them. He paid for their sins so that they are not punished for their sins. He ensured that they would not be punished for their sins. Verse 6 also. This ransom, this payment... It is the testimony born at the proper time. In the proper time in time and space, in the proper time in history, God sent His Son. The Apostle mentions this to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. After explaining to them that there is one God who created the whole world and that they should not worship idols, he says in verse 30, Acts 17, 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God overlooked the times of ignorance. That means he let nations go their own way without confronting their sin. He let the nations of the earth go their own way without confronting them with their sin, without the gospel proclamation confronting them for their sin. He, he overlooked the times of ignorance. But now, now that the cross and the resurrection have occurred, God has now called and commissioned His apostles and disciples to preach the gospel not only in Jerusalem and in Judea, but in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is why Paul finds himself in Athens, because he knows he's commissioned to go elsewhere, not just to the Jewish people. This is the kind of testimony born at the proper time. In due time, in the fullness of the time, Galatians 4.4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who are under the law, who are cursed by the law. Verse 7. All that he's just explained, he says, And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, and I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He was appointed a preacher and apostle. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. He says that he's an apostle according to God's commandment, God the Father and God the Son of Christ Jesus. And as well, in chapter 1, verse 12, uh, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me, in, putting me into service. He understands there that Christ strengthened him and commissioned him for the service that he is rendering to preach the gospel and to serve as an apostle not a self-appointed apostle but a Christ-appointed apostle we read of this also in Acts chapter 9 1 to 15 when Christ appeared to him and commissioned him on the road to Damascus he is supposed to preach practice his apostleship and teach we know that he did in many places according to his custom, go into the synagogue. Acts 17, 2-3. He would, according to his custom, go into the synagogue and reason from the scriptures and give evidence that Jesus was the Christ. He would do so. He would primarily meet Jews. But after some Jews accepted and others rejected the message, then he would go to the Gentiles. And that's where his primary ministry was. He would preach to Gentiles who are also willing to listen. Not all of them were willing to listen, but some of the Gentiles did, and others rejected the message. Here he identifies himself as concerned and set apart for the Gentiles. He finds it necessary to emphasize this fact at various points in his ministry because it was very easy for the Jews 
to only be concerned about themselves, to only pray for themselves, not to be concerned for the Gentiles because they worshipped idols, because they practiced immorality, because they had no knowledge of the true God, it was easy to dismiss them. And this is true. That's the status of the Gentiles. It's still the status of the Gentiles. They still worship idols. They still practice immorality. They don't have knowledge of the true God in the full and true sense. They don't embrace it. So just as he was their apostle, now we, most of us believers today, are Gentiles. Ethnically, we are Gentiles, not Jewish. But now, spiritually, we are Jews, not Gentiles. The Spirit of God has circumcised our heart. Romans 2, 28 and 29. He has circumcised our heart. Now, we have a claim to sonship. We are sons of God, sons of Abraham, because we have true faith, faith in Christ. And here... He calls himself not only a teacher of the Gentiles, but a teacher in faith and truth. He is, just as we should be, faithful and true teachers of the gospel. Faithful and true teachers of the gospel. Telling the truth and not lying. We ought to have a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Chapter 1, verse 19. False teachers don't have a good conscience and their faith suffers shipwreck. In this case, he preaches and teaches in faith. He's faithful and he's truthful. He does not lie. He says whatever the Word of God says. No matter who the audience, no matter who's before him, he'll speak the truth as it needs to be spoken according to context, according to the occasion. Okay. Yes. Um, in dealing from a from a practical standpoint, uh, back to the first part uh, of verse one or two, and talking about that we need to be praying for uh, those in authority. Um, how do you or can you reconcile uh, how we deal with this? bringing it to today today. Okay, so he was talking to them at that point to uh, the pagan uh, pagan authority that was that was in place. Well, we have our own authority. So, so 